Please take your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy, chapter 18, the book of Deuteronomy, toward the front end of your Bibles, first few books of the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 18, and once you arrive there, if you would, keep your finger there, and turn also to Luke chapter 24 in the New Testament, Luke's gospel account, chapter 24. Deuteronomy 18, we'll read together verses 15 through 19, and then we'll look over at Luke 24 and verse 27. Please look with me first at Deuteronomy chapter 18. Please follow along as I read, beginning in verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to him, excuse me, whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Now please turn over to Luke 24. Luke 24, verse 27. There we read of Jesus, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now turn over to John 1. Look at verse 45. Should be a page or two over from Luke 24. John 1 verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. One more text, John 5. So now a couple of pages further. John 5, verse 46. Jesus speaking says this. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Let's pray together. Father, please open our minds and our hearts by your Spirit's work within us to see what it is you have revealed about your Son in the Old Testament. As we consider this morning what Moses said years ago, Deuteronomy 18, may we understand greater who our Savior is and what he has come to do. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen. It is considered a matter self-evident in the Bible that mankind needs a mediator between them and God. The Bible assumes the need for a mediator, a go-between, an ambassador, a representative between God and man. That is our basic situation as mankind. And our need for a mediator stems from two basic facts. The first fact is God's perfect holiness, justice, and glory. God is in every way perfect in His holiness, His justice, His majesty, and His glory. The second fact requiring the need for a mediator between God and man is the fact of human depravity and sin. God is holy on the one hand, and we are not on the other. God is perfect on the one hand, and we are not on the other. God is all-powerful and majestic in His glory. We are finite, frail, and sinful. Thus, the Bible tells us we need a mediator. We need someone to come and represent God to us, to speak His words to us, to reveal His will to us, to show the way of redemption and salvation to us. And so throughout the history of redemption as revealed in the Bible, God appointed in His love and mercy at many times various mediators. And one of the Bible's words for these mediators is the word prophet. The prophet was one who would speak on behalf of God and represent God to the people. Daniel was a prophet. Elijah was a prophet. Isaiah was a prophet. Jeremiah 
was a prophet. These figures represented God to the people. That was their role and function as mediators, as prophets, to represent God to the people. And the existence of the prophet, the purpose for that role was predicated on the fact of God's transcendence, holiness, and glory on the one hand, and human sinfulness and need on the other. This office of prophet, of mediator, is the principal office that Moses occupied. Moses was not a king like David. He was not a priest like Aaron. He was a prophet. He was God's representative, God's ambassador to the people. He was God's man. In the role of a prophet, Moses did much in service to God, if you're familiar with his history. He spoke and performed God's judgments over Pharaoh and the Egyptians. We considered that a couple weeks ago in that last and final great plague that came upon the people of Israel. He delivered God's people out of Egypt. He was a kind of deliverer for the Israelites. And furthermore, as a prophet, he gave God's law to the people. As a prophet, it was his task, his responsibility to reveal God's will to the people. He led them in God's statutes. He spoke to them God's words. But what we learn about Moses as God's prophet, as God's man, was that he knew he was ultimately only a shadow of one who was to come. Even as he fulfilled the function of the office of prophet, he knew there was coming after him a prophet greater than him. His role in his office anticipated the coming of another who would speak fully and finally for God. And Moses foretold of his coming. And of course, we know, those of us who know the Scriptures, especially the New Testament, that Jesus Christ is that prophet. Moses foretold of his coming roughly 1,500 years before the actual coming of Christ. But where and when does Moses foretell and anticipate the coming of this greater prophet that's going to come and speak the words of God freely and fully and finally for his people? Well, he does it here in our passage this morning. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, this passage, more than any other passage, explains the biblical connection between Moses' ministry and Jesus' ministry. Jesus is presented to us in the Scriptures as the true and better Moses. And I think that's the title of this series that you have in your, or excuse me, the sermon that you have in your bulletins. He's the true and better Moses. He's the true and better prophet. And it's this passage of Deuteronomy 18 that establishes that connection between Jesus and Moses. Now, we're in a series of sermons over the summer that we've titled, uh, The Christ is Coming. We're going to some of the capstone texts in the Old Testament that create anticipation for the coming of the Messiah. We considered a number of weeks ago Genesis 3.15, that telling of the first gospel, uh, where we saw the gospel in seed form. It was revealed that God would bring a man from Eve's line who would fully and finally crush the serpent's head. What we emphasized in that message was the great victory God would have over sin and death and evil through his son Jesus Christ. Then we considered in Genesis 12.1 through 3 the promise made to Abraham that coming from his line would come a son, a seed, who would bring blessing and deliverance to the nations. That God was actually going to include in his redemptive purposes all the nations of the world. He would do this through the seed of the woman who's taken up then in Genesis 12 in the seed of Abraham. And then the last sermon in this series was from Exodus 12. We consider the whole event of the Passover. And now the blood of the lamb had to be appropriated over the doors of the Israelites so that when the destroyer of the Lord passed through the land of Goshen. He would not kill the Israelite children, but rather would deliver them out of the land of Egypt. The emphasis was on atonement. The emphasis was on the blood of a lamb as a substitute, which of course is taken up in the person of Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, Christ, who is our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That event was to build anticipation for the Lamb of God, the Son of God who would come and shed His blood. Now here in Deuteronomy 18, we have something completely different emphasized. Uh, here the emphasis is not on victory over sin and death. It's not on uh, God's redemptive purposes for the nations. It's not on atonement. But here in Deuteronomy 18, what is emphasized is that Jesus will come as God's prophet, as God's ambassador, as God's lawgiver, the great speaker for God, the great teacher for God is going to come, and he will represent fully and finally and definitively the words of God 
to men. He will fulfill the function of a prophet. So I want us to open up this passage this morning and learn what we can from Deuteronomy 18 about the prophetic ministry of Jesus. What does Jesus come to do as God's prophet? What do we learn about Jesus as God's prophet from Deuteronomy 18 verses 15 through 19? Four points this morning. The first thing we learn is this. Number one, he will be like Moses. Number one, he will be like Moses. Look, if you would, Deuteronomy 18 verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. This is Moses speaking. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. This verse reveals to the Israelite people through Moses that at some time in the future, God is going to raise up a prophet for Israel. They had a prophet in Moses. There's going to be another prophet that God's going to raise up. This prophet, Moses says, will be like me. Now, Moses doesn't enumerate in the passage the ways in which this prophet will be like him, but it's not hard for us to enumerate at least a few basic things. In what ways will Jesus, that greater prophet, be like Moses? At least three things. Number one, he will be a prophet. Moses was a prophet. Jesus is a prophet. Just as Moses spoke for God, Jesus will speak for God. Just as Moses functioned as the mouthpiece of God for the people, so Jesus will function as the mouthpiece of God for the people. Just as Moses represented God to man, so Jesus will represent God to man. Just as Moses gave God's law to God's people, Jesus, the greater prophet, will give God's law to God's people. Second way, Jesus is like Moses. He will be a prophet deliverer like Moses. Moses, in his capacity as a prophet, was also sent as a kind of deliverer to the people of Israel. Moses, in his prophetic role, actually led God's people out of their bondage in Israel. And I hope you know this. If you're familiar with the language of the Bible, you know that that motif of slavery and bondage in Egypt is picked up very much in the New Testament to speak of our slavery and bondage to sin and Satan and death. As the Israelite people got out of their bondage in Egypt, we get out of our bondage to sin through the greater prophet deliverer, Jesus Christ. Third way that Jesus is like Moses, he will be at the head of God's people as their leader. Moses leads God's people out of Egypt, and he is their leader in the wilderness. And he will guide them into the promised land. He will guide them into the paths of peace. So Jesus now is at the head of a greater company, greater and fuller expression of God's people, and he is our leader. As the prophet of God, he goes before us and leads his people on. He will be like Moses. But I need to make this note. You understand, you recognize, don't you, that to be like Moses does not mean that he will be the same as Moses. He's like Moses. He's not the same as Moses. No, this prophet will be like Moses, and he will be better than Moses. The writer of the Hebrews makes this exact point. If I ever preach a series on the book of Hebrews, I hope to one day, it'd have to be several years from now, but if I were to preach on the book of Hebrews, the title of the series has to be, and you can keep me accountable to this when the time comes, uh, Jesus is better. That's the theme of the book. He's better than everything. He's better than those priests Uh, who had to offer sacrifices for themselves day after day after day. He's the better sacrifice than the blood that was offered up. He's just offered up once for all. He's better than the temple. He's better than Melchizedek. He's better than Aaron. He's better than everybody, including Moses. Then the writer to the Hebrews makes this exact point. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. But in Hebrews 3, the writer says this, verse 3, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. What's the point there? Moses is like a member of the house or part of the house. Jesus built the house. Who's worthy of more glory? The house or the one who made the house? Obviously, answer the one who made the house, Jesus himself. He's worthy more glory than Moses, but he goes on. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. What's the point there? A new picture is taken up. Moses just had the status of like a servant in God's house. 
Jesus is better and counted worthy of more glory because he has more authority as God's son. He's the Lord of the house. The house belongs to him. Moses was a servant. Jesus is God's son. And oh, by the way, your servants as well of the house. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than us. This prophet is like Moses, but also better than Moses. Point number two. So back in Deuteronomy 18. Number one, he will be like Moses. We learned secondly, he will be raised up from among the Israelites. Look again at verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. Simple point. Jesus would come from among the Israelite people. He doesn't come from outside the line. He comes from among the people of Israel, which means the Israelites throughout their generations from here forward. We're expecting and anticipating one day God is going to raise up another prophet from among us. So so someday there's going to be an Israelite man and it's going to be evident that this man is the prophet of God and he will speak to us and we will listen to him. They already should know at this point that this son of Eve is going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head. The son of Abraham is going to come and through him all the families of the world will be blessed. Now we learn that He'll be a prophet, and he'll be raised up from among the Israelite people. And so they were waiting for him, 1,500 years waiting for the prophet to come. They were looking for him. They were expecting him to come. Most Israelites would have thought to themselves, could could my generation be the generation in which the prophet finally appears? As you're getting to know your Israelite brothers, In the Israelite family, one day we're going to meet the prophet. From among these people, he will come. And this explains something of the buzz and verve of John 1. As Philip hurries to Nathanael, and what does he say? He exclaims to Nathanael, we found him. We read it a moment ago. We found the one that Moses wrote about. We found the one of whom Moses spoke in the law. The prophet is here. It's Jesus of Nazareth. The prophet's arrived. You could imagine being Nathaniel hearing that news. Could it be that ancient promise of God given to us through Moses in Deuteronomy 18, he's he's finally come. The prophet is here, raised up from among the Israelite people. On a sadder note, it's also this precise point that he would be raised from among the Israelite people that goes a long way in explaining something of the callous blindness and hardness of heart that is emphasized in the gospel accounts with respect to the Pharisees and the Jewish people more broadly. God's prophet was raised up from among the Israelite people. They didn't receive their prophet. This is behind the heaviness of those words in John 1. He he came to his own, and his own received him not. How sad, how tragic. The prophet finally came. The people didn't have eyes to see him. They didn't have hearts to Receive him. This is behind Jesus' words in Matthew 13, 57. A prophet is without honor in his own town. Jesus came to the Israelite people from among whom he had risen, and they rejected him. They failed to receive him. Can you feel the agony and grief of Jesus as he weeps over Jerusalem, the city that kills its prophets? The prophet was raised up. The prophet came. They rejected their prophet. They would kill their prophet as they had killed prophets before Jesus. But we're told the Jews were to receive their prophet. They reject him. They failed to discern God's voice, God's presence in the person of Jesus. But nonetheless, it's been revealed. He will be raised up from among the Israelites. Third point now, Deuteronomy 18. Number one, he will be like Moses. We learn secondly, he'll be raised up from among the Israelites. Thirdly, and most importantly, He will speak the words of God to his people, and they will listen to him. What do we learn about this prophet thirdly? He will speak the words of God to his people, and they will listen to him. Look again, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, On the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. Now, what is Moses quoting there? 
What, what episode does he have in his mind? The clue is in the reference to Horeb. What happened at Mount Horeb? You have the giving of the Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments are given at Mount Horeb. There's the context of the cloud and the fire and the smoke and the great tempest. I'll read from that passage where God gives his ten words to the people at Mount Horeb. There in Exodus 20, 18 through 19, the Ten Commandments have just been given. Moses has spoken God's words to the people in the capacity of a prophet, and the people respond in this way, Exodus 20, 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. In other words, what they're saying is we need a prophet to speak to us. We need a mediator. We need a go-between. We can't hear the voice of God and live. We're going to need someone to represent us to God and represent God to us. We're going to need a mediator, an ambassador, a prophet. Now looking back in Deuteronomy 18, verse 17, what does Moses say? And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. Like, yeah, you're going to need a mediator. You're going to need a prophet. They're right, Moses. So he says, verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. Now this maybe is not what would be expected. They're right, they need a prophet. It's not going to be you, Moses. They need a mediator. And Moses, you might fulfill that function for a time, but they're going to need something a whole lot more than Moses. They're right in what they've spoken. They need a mediator. They need a prophet, but they need a greater prophet than Moses, one who I will raise up for them, a prophet like Moses from among their brothers. And then he says, I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. We learn this prophet who is to come, what's going to mark his ministry? He will be the great speaker for God. He will be the great teacher to give God's commands to the people. He's going to be the great lawgiver, the one who will speak fully and finally God's word to the people. God says, I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. He's going to speak to the people the words of God, the commands of God, and they're going to listen to him. Now, don't miss the context here. God is reminding them of the time God spoke to them once before at Mount Horeb, in the Ten Commandments. Literally, the word is the Ten Words. God gave His Word, written on tablets of stone, to the people. That's the context He wants in their minds. Do you remember when I gave my word through my prophet Moses? Well, there's coming a greater prophet. I'm going to do this again. The words are going to be put in His mouth, and He will speak them to you, and you will listen to the words of this prophet. He comes to show you the way in which you should walk. He comes to reveal to you and disclose to you the will of the Father. Now stop here. I want to remind you of why we're going through this series. There's two main reasons why we're in this series of sermons. I mean, we'll get Matthew, God willing, in the fall, and I wanted to connect this to Matthew. That's helpful. But two larger reasons why we're in this series. Number one, I want us to better understand how to put our Bibles together. I want us to become more thoroughly Christocentric in our reading of the Old Testament. That's a great theological term, Christocentric. Kids, what do you think I mean by Christocentric? Christ is central. Christ isn't just central in the New Testament. He's not first revealed to us there. Christ was anticipated. He was foretold. He would come. The Messiah would come. We have it here in our passage. He's anticipated. He's at the center of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is preaching to us that something's got to give. Someone's got to come. God has to get us out of this mess. And the solution to the mess that we're in that is created by our sin is that Christ is going to come. The greater Adam, the greater Abraham, the greater Moses, the greater David, he's going to come. And all of the Old Testament is anticipating that Christ is going to come. So I want us to better understand where Christ is in the Old Testament. But the second reason I think is more important why we're in this series. When we read passages like this, uh, telling of what God is going to do for his people in raising up a prophet, we learn with greater clarity who Jesus is and what he came to do. Like this helps us understand what is Jesus for? 
Why has he come? What role is he supposed to have in my life? See, we're in this passage. It is foretold that Jesus would come as a prophet. And he's going to speak to the people. Who's that? That's you and me. And all those who embrace his message. He's going to come and he's going to speak his word. We're going to listen to him. We learn here with greater clarity what Jesus comes to do, what he's for. He comes as a prophet. He comes, therefore, to give us God's law. He comes to give us God's commandments. At least that's part of why he comes. Certainly he comes to be the sacrifice for our sins, how we need him to do that. But we also need him to guide our feet in the path of peace. We need him to show us God's law. We need him to tell us what God's will for our life is. And this passage is telling us that's exactly why he comes. He will come as the great prophet. He will speak for God. He will teach us his will. God will put his commands in Jesus' mouth, and Jesus will speak them to us. He will be that great prophet who teaches us how to live and shows us how to walk. So, more than a millennium and a half later, does this give insight into these words in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount? Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. What's Jesus doing? The greater Moses, the greater prophet. After 40 days in the wilderness in Matthew 4, he ascends another mountain, and from this mountain, God's prophet opens his mouth. And he teaches his people the law of God. Do you think of Jesus as a lawgiver? I'll never forget, I remember wanting to arrive at a greater understanding of the Sermon on the Mount and podcasting a well known preacher who probably should have spent less time preaching and more time studying his Bible, suggesting that the Sermon on the Mount is basically given to us to show us all the ways we fail and how Jesus doesn't fail, and so we need Jesus to save us. That is not why the Sermon on the Mount is given to us. The Sermon on the Mount is the prophet of God coming with God's commands for how we're to live. And in grace and mercy and kindness, he's telling us, this is my will for my people. This is how we as the people of God must live. This is the great prophet teaching us the words of God. I I wonder this perspective, this prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 that Jesus would be the greater prophet, does it illumine these words from John 12? Jesus says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore I say, as the Father has told me. It's direct fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18. God says, I'm going to put my law in his mouth. He will speak to the people. They will listen. And here is Jesus, 1,500 years on, saying, I have commandments to give you. I speak as I've been spoken to by the Father. He's given me a word to say to you. Does this illumine those Glorious opening words of Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophet, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The prophet, like Moses, has come, and he has come to speak the words of God, and it is to him the people will listen. But of course, it's important we recognize Jesus' ministry as this greater prophet. It's not merely a ministry of restatement. He doesn't just come to sort of like reiterate. Remember remember as Moses said, well, I'm just going to say the same things to you just with a little more oomph and unction. No, the idea is what we get in Jesus is like a fuller, richer, better disclosure of God and his will. That's not to diminish the Old Testament at all. It's the word of God. We must submit to what the Bible teaches to us in every place. But it is to say in Jesus we get something more. He's the true and better Moses. We get a fuller revelation of who God is and what his will is for his people through this prophet, the prophet who is greater than Moses. I think this is something 
of what is behind those words in John 1. Again, verse 16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Like we get more of God in Jesus. He reveals the Father to us. He is that great agent for God, that ambassador for God, that representative of God, that great speaker and teacher and lawgiver of God. He represents God to the people for he himself is God and has been with God. You see, what we get in Jesus is the fuller disclosure of God and his will for us. And when John wants to describe this ministry, he describes it as a ministry of grace and truth. Jesus brings the fullest disclosure of the person and will of God because he himself is the only God who is at the Father's side. He has come to reveal God fully, freely, and finally. I want to pause here now for a point of application before we consider the fourth point, which will be very brief. Part of what it means to follow Jesus. Some young people have been asking me that question. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? Well, wonderfully, it means that you've had your sins forgiven. You've come to Christ in repentance and faith and embraced Him as God's provision for salvation, His death and resurrection. No less than that. But it means more than that. Part of what it means to follow Jesus is to accept and embrace His prophetic ministry. Jesus comes as our great high priest to offer up Himself as a sacrifice for sins. Amen. Praise God. Jesus comes as a king to rule and reign over us. Amen. He comes also as a prophet who gives us God's commandments and speaks his words to us. He tells us what to do and how to live. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means that you embrace Jesus as your teacher. You embrace him as God's lawgiver, as the one who reveals to us the will of God for our lives, which means part of what it means to follow Jesus is to do as he's commanded us. This is part of why Jesus came. He will speak the commandments of God to the people, and they will listen. We're to listen to him. And just candidly, brothers and sisters, I'm concerned we don't think about this enough. Like Jesus comes to give God's law to his people. He comes to tell us how to live. Are you expecting to receive that from Jesus? To embrace that in Jesus? When you hear words like duty and law and commandment and requirement, do you think, well, I'm really glad that I don't live in Old Testament days because all that stuff would then be in play. But thank God in Jesus, I don't got to worry about it. I don't think any of the pastors I've read will justify or countenance that thought one iota. But Jesus comes to give us his law and to tell us how to walk and to tell us how to live. And if I could be so bold, I think so much of the anemia and impotence of American Christianity is that it reserves no place for God's law. It reserves no place for holiness and Christ-likeness. And honoring God with our lives, obeying his commandments, doing as the great prophet of God has called us to do, not to earn our salvation, but to embrace him as the leader of his people and to do what he has called us to do. Listen, there's nothing of any power, nothing of any real supernatural work in a community of people who recite incantations in various prayers, say they've had their sins forgiven, and don't evidence any sort of change or transformed life. There's no power in that. That kind of milk toast witness, that insipid kind of idea that, hey, just name it and claim it, or just you know, walk the aisle and pray the prayer, and I'm good. That's not Christianity. Jesus comes, yes, as our sacrifice for sins, and there is no salvation. Without embracing him as God's provision, the substitute, the atonement. But to embrace Jesus is more than that. He's God's prophet who comes to speak the words to us. 
The response of the disciple, the eager disciple of Jesus, who eagerly waits upon God's law, as by the way the prophet Isaiah told us the nations of the world will do, they will wait eagerly for God's law. Those disciples who embrace God's law and want God's law and come under God's law and obey God's law, they have the posture of the disciple Peter. In John 6, Jesus says to Peter, will you leave me too, you my disciples, after all the crowds leave him? What does Peter say? He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words, the words, the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe you are the Holy One of God. You're the one of whom Moses wrote in the law. We embrace you. We receive you. We want your words. And so what is to be the attitude of the Christian when we come before the Sermon on the Mount, when God's greater prophet comes, the true and better Moses is here, and he speaks forth the words of God, the commands of God, the precepts of God. What's to be the posture of the Christian? The Lord says we're not to be anxious, but we're to consider rather the flowers of the fields or the birds of the air and to see God's provision for them. We're not to be anxious about tomorrow, what a day will bring. We are so good in the 21st century of domesticating that word from the Lord. Well, we can't really control anxiety. Anxiety is like, you know, just which way the wind blows. You really have no control over anxiety. I'm an anxious person. I'll always be an anxious person. And that just sort of, you know, bounces off our heads. We domesticate God's commandments. I'm not denying that there's a kind of physiological anxiety type panic attack that come over people that is not the product of actual willful sins that we commit, but that is not 90% of the anxiety in the world. It's probably not 99% of the anxiety in the world. There's a kind of sinful anxiety. And Jesus says, you're not to live in that. You're not to walk in that. The eager disciple says, yes, I will tie God's law around my neck. I will bring these promises to bear upon my life, and I'll pray, Lord, help me to live in your promises. Help me to embrace your will. As the prophet of God, I receive your word. I embrace your word. How about the Lord's words regarding lust? Again, so good, aren't we, at domesticating the Lord's commands. Everybody looks at pornography. I mean, come on. Everybody engages in that kind of thing. You know, so what if I do that? The Lord can't really expect that I'm to mortify my lustful desires. But what does the Lord say? He says, pluck out your eye and cut off your hand. I'm not encouraging anyone to mutilate themselves today. What is the great prophet of God saying to us? My people, those who listen to me, they're going to mortify their sin. They're going to take a kind of attitude of sanctified, holy violence against their sin. You can consider Jesus' words on divorce, Jesus' words on sexuality. How about do not enter the house of God when you have a complaint against your brother? Well, that would be awkward, wouldn't it? Walking into church and I know that I have something against Brother Bob or Sister Jane. What, I'm really supposed to go to them? Supposed to leave my gift on the altar and go and make it right? That would be kind of awkward, right? Is that the attitude we take toward the Lord's precepts? Or do we expect him, as the prophet of God, to tell us those commandments, those precepts by which we're to live, and do we respond to them? We want to be those people in Deuteronomy 18 who listen to him, who hear his commands and observe them and keep them, because we have, like Philip, believed that he is the Holy One of God. He is the one of whom Moses wrote in the law. And I'm expecting from Jesus to tell me, how am I to live? How can I please you? How am I to walk? Tell me, what are the commands of God? I need to know how to live because the law of the Lord is perfect and it revives the soul. Some of you are doing a book study through Carl Truman's book, Strange New World. We're going to meet this afternoon at 3.30. If you've forgotten, don't forget, 3.30 down the hall. Did you catch that little line by Wilhelm Reich? Do you know who Wilhelm Reich is? He's a moron, okay? Wilhelm Reich said this, all compulsory morality is life-negating. All compulsory morality negates life, destroys life. What a bitter perspective. The law that Jesus brings, the law of God, revives the soul. It gives life. Testimony of the Lord is sure. 
The Word of God makes wise the simple. We need His law. We love His law. We want to meditate on His law day and night. I need to know the words of my God because I love my God, and His will is good, and it's right, and it informs how I'm to live and tells me how I'm to walk. I need Him to show me the paths of righteousness and to lead me in them. That is to be the posture and the heart and the disposition of a Christian. We understand that God has given us His Word through His Son. And we see our role as His people to listen to Him. To obey what God's prophet Jesus Christ has spoken. He shows us what God's will is for our lives. And we as His people are those who gladly, with delight, listen to Him and embrace His will. Okay, fourth and final point. You've been a patient audience this morning. Number one, what do we learn in Deuteronomy 18? Jesus is going to be like Moses. Number two, he will be raised up from among the Israelites. Number three, he will speak the words of God to his people and they will listen to him. Number four, don't miss this. God will judge those who fail to listen to him. Did you catch that when we read the passage? God will judge those who fail to listen to his prophet. Verse 19, and whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Okay, so the prophet has come. He's spoken. Some don't listen to him. But where does that leave him? The Lord says, some will not listen, and for those who do not listen, I myself will require it of him. I don't know what all that means, but it sounds terrifying saying, I, I will judge them. They are answerable for how they respond to my prophet. And Jesus will emphasize this in his ministry. We're going to see this in the Gospel of Matthew. He pronounces so many woes over the Pharisees and over the people of Jerusalem. The prophets come. He's spoken the words. They've rejected him. They haven't listened to him. They haven't embraced him. If I could be so bold, there are some of you here, week by week, who hear the scriptures preached, and you don't listen. You have not embraced God's prophet. He is speaking through his word. We have the words. He's speaking through his word. Do you listen to him? All those who do not listen to God's son, God's prophet, God himself will require it of you. It's a New Testament version of this same warning, and it's contained in the book of Hebrews. There's so much of Deuteronomy in Hebrews. Listen as I read this passage. It's a pretty well-known passage, Hebrews chapter 12. Listen to how the author of the Hebrews makes the same point. Hebrews 12, verse 18. He's talking to us. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. You're not in that situation. No one here is in that situation. We are not those who come to the mountain, Mount Horeb, with the great cloud and the tempest and the word of the Lord that is spoken to them through God's voice that they can't hear, they tremble, they want to die, they're going to die. If they have to endure that voice, they need a mediator. We're not in that same situation. We don't come to a mountain that can be touched. But the writer to Hebrews says, verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Well, what's to be our response? Verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. See, take heed. Son of God has spoken. In these last days, God has spoken by his son. He's called the nations to repentance and faith. 
He's called his disciples to follow his word and his law. I have spoken to my son. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. It's a wonderful thing that God has revealed himself to man. Wonderful thing that he has sent his prophet. Salvation and deliverance is for us in God's prophet. But it brings a kind of terror to those who reject him. God has spoken in these last days through his son. And those who do not listen to him, those who reject the one who is speaking, they will be judged from heaven. God will judge those who fail to listen to his prophet. Well, I'd like to close in this fashion by reminding you of one of the most well-known events in Jesus' ministry. It's recorded in three of the Gospels. It takes place in the latter half of Jesus' ministry. We call it the Transfiguration. Remember what happened at the Transfiguration? It's recorded in Matthew 17 and somewhere else in Luke and Mark. What happens at the Mount of Transfiguration? Jesus gathers James and John and Peter, those most intimate of his disciples. He takes them up to a high mountain. And what happens? He's transfigured before them. His face shines like the sun. And his, his, his clothes are white, flashing. They see something of his transfigured glory. Do you remember who's there at the Mount of Transfiguration along with Jesus? T- two men arrive with him, Elijah and Moses. And, and the pastors read that they're talking to Jesus, Moses and Elijah. And it's not recorded what they said. Wouldn't you like to know what they said? We don't have recorded what they said. We have recorded what God himself says. And what does God say at the Mount of Transfiguration? This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. What did Moses say then? I'll speculate. Amen. Amen. The greater Moses has come. All that I could never do for the people, he's come. He is revealing God to man. Emmanuel, God with us. The greater Moses is here. See that we do not refuse him who is speaking. See that you listen to him. And for some of us, that will mean listening to him for the first time. It'll mean hearing his word. That he has come into the world as light. That whoever believes in him will not remain in darkness, but have the light of life. For some of us to listen to the great prophet greater than Moses is to repent and turn from our sins to flee the wrath of God and to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God's provision for salvation. Do not refuse him who's speaking. He's speaking to you now. This is God's beloved son. Listen to him for your soul's sake. Turn and believe and you will be saved. For some of us here who have been in the way for some time, this word means to us that we should recommit ourselves to God's commandments for us. Maybe I've been straying. I've not been living as I ought. I've, I've lapsed into some kind of libertinism. I'm to remember. I'm to walk as a Christian. We're to be as God's people in a sense the light of the world. I need to recommit myself to holiness and faithfulness and embracing and listening to and believing God's prophet. I want to follow his commands better because I do believe he is the one of whom Moses wrote in the law. He is the prophet of God. I need his words. I want to live by them and tie them around my neck. There may be some of us here this morning, we, we read that word, listen to him, and for us, that needs to precipitate a reassessment of where we stand with the Lord. I don't regard his law at all. I don't think about it. I don't want it. It's a burden to me. You can come to Christ, candidly admitting that, acknowledging that to him, and asking for grace to change, that his commandments would not be burdensome to you, that you would love his law as we ought. 
But as a preacher to you this morning, this is the only word I can give you. Do not refuse him who is speaking. This is God's son in whom he is well pleased. The true and better Moses. Listen to him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we know in our heart of hearts that we need a mediator. We need someone to represent you to us and us to you. If we did not have that mediator, we'd have no hope in even doing what we're doing now, speaking words to you and praying to you. Even now we come through this mediator. Lord, you have revealed in your word that Jesus Christ, your son, is your prophet. He is the only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. May we all be found in him. May we all submit our lives and our wills and our everything to him. We pray that we would love your commandments, that we would love your righteous rules, that we would embrace your requirements and your discipleship for us. We pray that we would not be like the horse without bit or bridle, but rather that we would be docile, that we would be ready to receive your instruction, that we would believe your word and embrace your word and walk in the paths of righteousness. Father, thank you that you have shown us how to live. You've shown us what it means to be a faithful disciple. Help us to enter into all it is that you have for us as your people. We pray that through our lives, through our words, we would exalt the true and greater Moses, the great prophet of God, Jesus Christ, through whom you have spoken. And we pray that we would be agents in your hand to bring that word to more and more people, that more and more people might listen to him and believe him and trust him and follow him. In these moments now, Lord, and in the days to come, reveal to each one of our hearts what it means to us, what it ought to mean to each one, that we would listen to your Son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The song of response that we've selected is taken from Psalm 19, uh, verses 7 through 11. We read those verses earlier. It begins with that wonderful line, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Psalm 19 describes the Christian attitude toward the Lord's commands and his precepts. Let's sing it in faith as the Lord's people. Let's stand together.